Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, uh, we welcome you. It's good to have you tonight. If you will, everybody open your Bibles to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Uh, we'll be studying in our mailbox series in just a moment on your Bible that is in the pews there. If you need to borrow that, it'll be on 1040. And we will continue in receiving letters in our mail from Paul, a tremendous letter in the book of Ephesians that we have to study tonight. I failed to mention in one of the services this morning, so let me add this for clarity's sake. If you can come and be a part of the stateside missions dinner that will follow next Sunday evening service, that's everyone that's been a part of mission trips in the past and all that would like to learn about the stateside mission trip for this year in July that will be in Bristol, uh, you're invited to be a part of that. It is a catered meal, so if you can go on Family Tree and RSVP, or if you can go to the Information Center and reserve your place there and also let us know how many kids you'll be bringing and there's child care that's going to be available and they'll also have pizza provided for them and you'll probably have a meal a little bit nicer than pizza but it's going to be a wonderful time to hear about the great plans that are being made. And if you're thinking, you know, I can't sit down and do a one-on-one -on -one Bible study, that's not the thing for me. There's a place for almost everybody in that work of stateside mission trip. And we want to encourage you, if that fits in your schedule, we want to challenge you to go and to give that mission trip a try. It is a wonderful, wonderful experience. And we hope that, that you can come and you can be a part of that with us. It's always good to be together doing the Lord's work, and that's just one one of those times uh, to do the Lord's work and it's a wonderful experience. It's always a huge blessing to be able to study about the church in Ephesus. Out of all the churches in the New Testament, perhaps other than Jerusalem, the Bible tells us more either directly or indirectly about the church of Ephesus than probably any other church. You see, when we look in Acts the 19th chapter, we have a pretty detailed beginning of the church there in Ephesus, especially coming out of the end of the 18th chapter. And you remember Paul went and he lived among those people for three years. That was a long time for the traveling missionary Paul to stay put. But there was something about that huge city and there was something about those people that Paul just loved the opportunity to reach out. And remember the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of those was the Temple of Diana. And there was a worldwide religion that people would travel into. And Paul and the small church there had such success that the silversmiths were beginning to get nervous that this little startup group, if you will, of Christians was going to have an impact on this world religion that had this majestic looking temple that, that, that was a, a wonder of the ancient world. And then we come out of the book of Acts and we have the book of Ephesians written to a healthy church, which we'll study in a few moments. And in your reading in the mailbox series for this year, we're reading this week the third and the fourth chapter. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But if you just want to think about it, and if you want to do additional reading this week, just go over and read First and Second Timothy. Paul was writing to a young minister, and he was working where? In Ephesus. Sent by Paul to Ephesus to continue to help that church. And then the seven churches of Asia in Revelation, the second chapter, coming out of the first chapter and then to the second and third chapter, Jesus Christ appeared in that revelation and told John, write these things down. And he says, I have seven churches that I want you to write to. And if you'll notice in your Bibles, if you have a red letter edition where Christ's words are in red, 
those chapters in Revelation are written in red because it's the message of Jesus Christ to the church. And this is one of the first times that we get the idea that there might be some things that need to be handled differently there. It's interesting in Revelation 2, they're still very active in all the works and the ministries. They're still very active in fighting false doctrine and testing teachers to make sure that what is said is true. But do you remember, do you remember the one thing that they were lacking? It's sad. He said, you have left your first love. You see, in a sense, they had become a hollow shell of what they used to be. They used to carry out these great works because they loved Jesus. They used to fight false teaching because they loved Jesus, who was truth himself. I want to challenge you tonight. It's not really what our lesson is about per se, but I want to challenge you tonight to evaluate your own life. Why do you serve in ministry? Why do you reach out and try to help others? Why do you believe that it's worth it to learn the truth and to teach the truth? I hope that all of us here can say, it's because I love Jesus. I've devoted my life to Jesus. Now notice, it's because of that devotion to Jesus that has moved me out into ministry. It's because of that devotion of Jesus that causes me to stand on truth. In Ephesus, they were getting a wake-up call from Jesus himself. They were encouraged to overcome and to repent and to turn back to their first love. In a little bit, we'll sing a song of invitation. And if you've left your first love, you and I need to hear the same message that Paul and well, Jesus in Revelation was giving to Ephesus and we can study now, though, this wonderful message that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. And when you look through Ephesians, it's one of those books, like all the books in the Bible, the deeper you study it, the more you love it, the more it comes to life. It's just a beautiful, powerful passage. I want to mention some things just real quickly by introduction. When we look here in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, there's this plea in verse 3 that has to do with unity. Look in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that word endeavoring is to go quickly, to go with all of, of your being. Some, some describe it like a racehorse, and, and that racehorse, which a perfect weekend for that, the Kentucky Derby, and, and that racehorse is striving for the end. And, and that's the idea of endeavoring. And so you say, are you giving all of your energy? Are you quickly trying to do what? to promote the unity or to maintain, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What does God want from us? God wants you and I to be united. United in what? United by the Spirit of God, but also united in the fact that we're all moving in the same direction, even in our conduct. Now, that's not the only way we're united, but tonight we're going to see from the teachings that we're going to bring out of this chapter, it has so much to do with our conduct. What, what are we united in and what are we moving toward? If you will, drop down and let's read verse 13. And I want you to notice how we're united in Christ and moving toward a greater likeness of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Now here it is. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul, you want us to be united and united doing what? He says, I want you to be united as you grow 
toward Christ. Grow into the measure, not of other good men. Don't compare yourself to each other. Isn't that interesting? You are united, but you're not united because you compare yourself to each other. You're united because all of you are comparing yourself to Jesus. Am I growing toward Jesus? Are you growing towards Jesus? If we both can say yes, we are united in that. He says it again in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Can we say Individually, I'm trying to grow in all things like Christ. You're trying to grow in all things like Christ. The people sitting around us are trying to grow in all things like, we're united then. We're united in the conduct in that we are truly trying to grow in all ways like Christ. That is going to be very different. In the 17th verse here, it's going to be very different from the world, from the heathens. Look at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, or maybe a little better translation would even say the rest of the heathens walk in the futility of their mind. Walking together in the likeness of the Lord is very different than walking like a heathen walks. It's a change for us. He talks about that change. Look at 22 and following. This is what it's like that you put off concerning our former conduct, the old man. That's when we walk like the heathens. We put that off, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and renewed. Here's the positive in the spirit of your mind and that you put on what? The new man, which was created according to God in the true righteousness and holiness. That's when we're moving toward Christ again to truly, truly give our best effort to be righteous, to do the right thing, to be holy, to be free from anything that would defile our purity. How do we do that? We do that together, focusing on the Lord, the unity of the Spirit, moving toward the Lord. Now, if we heard that, perhaps we would say, that's a powerful lesson. God has just given us a wonderful lesson. And then we might say, but what does that look like lived out? I, I kind of understand what he's just said, but what would it look like lived out? How would it change today? How would it change the way I live tomorrow in the community or at work or at school? How would it change things? And he lays out a very, very practical last paragraph. We're only going to look at three of the points here because in the recent past, we looked at points that covered 29 through 32. And so we're going to just look at 25 through 27 and we are going to keep in mind the context that this is found in. It's found in people who are unified. In other words, all of us are going to do these same things because we're all moving toward the Lord. So what is the first thing that he says we're all going to do together? Look in 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now we'll talk about truth and lies in just a moment, but isn't it interesting the last part of that verse that we are all members of one another? You know, a lot of times when we talk about this, we talk about we're members of Christ's body. Or we talk about we're members of the church. But that's a very interesting wording. We are members of one another. That points to the responsibility that we have to each other. It points to the fact that we are in this together, but also we have a responsibility to one another. I have a responsibility to you that, that if I am a part of the Lord's family, 
that I've said, I'm putting off this conduct and I'm moving toward Christ. You have a responsibility to me on that. Do we recognize that? Do we hold each other accountable? Do we really strive to help each other grow? Are we truly helping each other in this way? Well, what would the first one be? The first one he would say is, hey, let's talk about lying versus truth. And he says, now that we have taken that old conduct and we've put it away, he says, here's something we're putting away. Stop lying. What we're going to bring now in our life is we're going to bring truth into our life. What is lying? Telling something that's not true? Being deceptive? Where does lying come from in the sense of our temptation? You may remember John 8 and 44, but I'd like to read it to you. And if you want to turn there, John 8 and 44, we need to remind ourselves who we're linking with whenever we lie. If you're turning there, I'm going to give you just a moment to turn there. And I'm going to remind you that Revelation 21 and 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second coming. Now, I want you to think about, there's a group over here that is of that former conduct, and what do they do? They lie. And their eternal destiny is far different than those that are moving toward Christ and those that are united moving toward Christ. Well, it's not only different in eternal conduct. It's different, of course, in the master that we serve. In John 8 and 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So if we wanted to be like the devil, what would we do? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in what? The truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. Now I want you to think about this unity again. Who have we really unified ourselves with whenever we lie? Jesus Christ, John 14, 6 says, I am the truth. We are not moving toward the stature of the fullness of Jesus. We have not linked ourselves with Jesus when we tell lies. We have linked ourselves with Satan, the father of lies. And lying is deceptiveness, exaggeration, cheating, school, business, betrayal of confidence. Someone tells you something expecting you to keep it confidential and you hear it as if you're communicating you will keep it confidential and you don't that's deceptive we put away lying to do what to speak the truth have you ever sat in silence when the truth should have been spoken I don't know if you could say that's the exact thing as lying but some way it falls in this verse. It falls in this verse that it is our responsibility to speak the truth. And so we see here a great responsibility that is a huge shift because there is one master that's the father of lies and there is another master who is truth himself and we are to be united together moving toward that master and because now we are a new creation, obviously what has to be put away is lying. But now notice... 
There's a second thing. If you're back there in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, look again as we look at two verses, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. That's interesting. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. You see, it is implied there that it is possible to be angry and not to sin. Now, we need to recognize that also he gives us a fair warning and he gives us a solution to this, if you will. And the fair warning is if we let anger harbor within our soul and we let the sun go down, in other words, we let a period of time pass and we let the sun go down, we are creating an environment within us that is conducive to the growing of sin. I think about it, and, and maybe you need a different illustration, but the way I think about it is, is taking a little tomato seed and a little pot of soil. And if you put that out in the late winter outside, it's not an environment where it can grow. The frost will still hit it. But what if you could take that same tomato seed and that same pot of soil and you could put it in a little hotbed under plastic? Or what if you could go to a, a nice greenhouse and put it inside the greenhouse? Now you have created an environment where that seed can really grow well. And later you can put it out and, and you can produce nice tomatoes. Fruit will be produced from that effort. Do you realize that our heart is a place that if we decide to take in anger and we decide to, to create an environment, if you will, in our heart to allow anger to produce, anger in a heart is like a greenhouse that is saying to sin, come here and grow. The longer we nurture anger, the more bitter we become. And we will begin to use our words and our actions to hurt others. And the sad reality is, we also, at the same time that we're harboring that, we're hurting ourselves. It's like a cancer of the heart that is eating away our peace and eating away our righteousness. Oftentimes when people say, I can't forgive them. What they may not realize is that sin of not being able to forgive started from a heart that created a greenhouse of bitterness that said, I'm angry and I'm going to let the sun go down on it every day and I'm going to continue remembering this. And it creates a horrible and a dangerous atmosphere. Sometimes I like to think of our heart from this verse. I like to think of our heart as also being a harbor. And there's all kinds of boats and vessels that come by. And there's some that we bring into the harbor of our heart and we hold them close. But there's others that they come in and we do not need to hold them closely. Listen, anger is one of those vessels that as it comes by and it launches into our heart, that's a vessel that we, we have to say it can't stay here long. This vessel has to depart. We don't have time to develop this text fully, but if you drop back to Matthew, the fifth chapter, I'd like to show you something uh, before we, we leave this point. To me, this is, this is really, uh, the, the way these, these uh, paragraphs, one precedes the other, is pretty powerful. Of course, you'll recognize Matthew 5. It's the, the Sermon on the Mount. 
And this is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful sermon that Jesus preached. And we have some real challenging practical guidance that he gives us in the fifth chapter in verse 38. And I want you to think of these things even as it pertains to the challenge that sometimes that we have of obeying this is because we're so angry, we say, I can't obey this. And so in 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek. Now let's pause there. How angry would you be? Could you finish this in your anger? Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. And if we're really honest, most of us would probably have to look at that and say, that would stir up so much anger, it would be very, very difficult for me to do that. Now back up and see what has already been taught in this sermon to precede that. Look at 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother Rachel shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I wonder, and because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, there, there's no reason to try to just break this down as, as it's got to be concrete. But I just wonder if this passage is right here was not going through Paul's mind when he taught to not let the sun go down upon your anger and, and to not give place for Satan. And here, Jesus is literally teaching the heavenly Father does not want you to come to the place of worship to offer your gift if you have allowed anger in your heart or you know because of your actions you've allowed that ought to be with another brother. And he says, I literally want you to stop I want you to go and I want you to resolve that matter and I want you to come back. In other words, what Jesus is saying there, I don't want you to worship right now. And even though he didn't say this directly, in a sense what he's saying is, I do not want the sun to go down today without you resolving this matter. You leave your gift here, you go resolve this with your brother, then you come back. Why? It's in the context of anger. What does anger lead to? Anger leads to murder. Now I know you're saying, Listen, I may be angry at someone, but I'm not going to murder them. You, you very well may be right with that. But listen, anger leads to murder. If we were to take all the murders that took place in America this year, you think how many of them first an individual was angry? The point is this. Anger leads us to do a lot of things that if we were not angry, we would not otherwise do. Anger is a lot like being intoxicated, where we do and say things that we wouldn't do except that we have experienced that. Now, as we go back to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, I'd like for you to notice verse 27. Real short verse there. Nor give place to the devil. Isn't it interesting that the word devil there is the accuser. It's the idea of a slanderer. 
And a lot of times whenever we're angry, what we do is we slander other people in our anger. It's almost like he's doing a play on words here to say, don't take the devil, the slanderer, into your heart because then what's going to come out of your heart is the slander that's filling your heart. Wouldn't it be a horrible thing? Wouldn't it be a horrible thing to know that we've given a place in our heart for Satan? Now listen, I know this is in black and white, but I want to state it real clear for all of our benefit. When we have anger that is unresolved, it's not like we've given a place for Satan. When we have unresolved anger, we have given a place for Satan. It's serious. And so the first one, Paul says, hey, as we move together in likeness of Christ, I want us to think about our lips. Are we speaking the truth? As we move in likeness of Christ, I want us to think about our heart. What are you harboring? What are you not harboring? But then third, and finally this evening, I'd like for you to see that he also says, let's talk about our hands. Do your hands have in possession things that don't belong to you? Let's look at verse 28. Let him who stole... Here's the negative, still no more. But rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. What is stealing? Taking something that does not belong to you. Taking something that the owner has not transferred into your hands. Is it a problem? Any of you that are in retail? You know how serious the problem is. A Target store like here in Mount Juliet, they expect to have at least $220,000 of losses a year. We have a real problem in America with people not taking what is theirs. If we're going to be like Christ, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that he says, together, we're going to grow like Christ in unity. And what we're all going to do is we are all going to stop taking things that do not belong to us. Shoplifting. Keeping incorrect change. Because it's somebody else's accident, does that mean you can keep what's not yours? No. Not paying debt. It's not yours to keep. James 5 and verse 4 teaches powerfully it's stealing to not pay workers who do work for you. Matter of fact, in that passage, he says that the workers in their fraud, that their cries will be heard by the Lord of the Sabbath. God takes it serious whether it's grand theft or petty theft whether it's robbing a bank or getting money off your parents' dresser that's not yours? Do you return what you have borrowed? Does it matter to you if you return what you have borrowed? How important is it to you to say, 
I do not want anything in my possession that is not mine. Why? Because that is what Christians, those that are growing like Christ, that's what we said, what God said we wouldn't do. That was the old way. The old way. Didn't care. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. Now the new man that is moving in unity, we're moving toward honesty. I, I wonder if kids today, if you're my age or older, you remember how we were taught about Abraham Lincoln. Remember how we were taught how many miles he walked to return a book that he borrowed? And we learned about Abe being honest Abe. I doubt that that is really pushed in the school system today because honesty is not pushed in America today. Today, you just don't steal something large enough that you can get in serious trouble is the consequences in the mindset. Do you return your books? If we went through your house right now, how many books would you have on your shelf or tucked away somewhere that would say, the Mount Juliet Church of Christ Library? If we went out in your garage, you know those black Samsonite chairs that they, they only cost about 20 bucks a piece. You know, at one time, we probably had about 600 of those chairs. I wonder how so many of them disappeared. I wonder if, if there's a lot of garages around here that just have four or five or six of them that just hadn't been that important whether or not they're returned or not. You know, those little cost, Costco tables, they're only about six foot long. They only cost a few dollars. You see the point? We can get in a secular mindset that says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Listen, it's the dedication, remember what we read a few minutes ago? To righteousness and holiness. To be able to say, I want to be a person that does the right thing. Why? Because I am members with other people that do the right thing. And we are all moving toward Christ, who is the leader that has taught us to do the right thing. And somebody says, you think that's a big deal? When it's only a big deal to the people that are moving toward Christ. It's not a big deal at all to the people in the world. As a matter of fact, people in the world would say, are you serious? You're not really serious that it's a big deal that we don't own things or we don't keep things that don't belong to us. We couldn't expect the world to understand that. It's a different standard. It's a standard of, of honesty. Now notice this. Instead of stealing, he says, I want you to work. Why do you work? Well, when you don't steal, you have to have something to provide for you. And he says, I want you to let work provide for you. Why? And this is what's powerful. Instead of stealing, I want you to share. I want you to work so that you can provide for yourself and that you have to give to those in need. It is truly more blessed to give than to receive. Many of you in this room know that well. You know it through a life experience. I just want to remind all of us that, that go to work tomorrow. I want to remind us of one reason why we ought to appreciate work is because it gives us the opportunity to provide for our own. And if we don't, we're worse than an infidel is what he said in 1 Timothy 5 and 8. But also it gives us the opportunity to give to others. Notice he said, 
give to others who are in need. I hope that you always have some setback. Something set back that you always have something ready to give to those who are in need. That, according to the Lord, is why we work. That's practical, isn't it? I don't guess you could find any four verses in the Bible that you could say it gets more practical than that. The Lord says, let's grow like Jesus. When we talk, stop lying. Let's tell the truth to each other. Our heart, get that, get that anger out before the sun sets. Create a place of peace, tranquility, a place that's willing to forgive. And those hands, make sure those hands are not holding things that doesn't belong to them. Make sure they're working and working in things, he says, that are good so that we have hands that can share our goods with others. What a beautiful, beautiful life the Lord offers us. And we're in it together. Tonight, if there's anything that we can do to strengthen each other, I want to remind you that we are members of one another. What is it that we could do to encourage you? What is it that we could do to help you? If you are ready to become a Christian and you're ready to be baptized into Christ tonight, we would love to assist you with that. We're members one of another. If, if you want to come forward, you're already a child of God and you want to ask the forgiveness of sins and, and we would love to pray with you and encourage you in that way. If you simply want the prayers of the church, we would love, we're members of one another. There's not any of us here perfect. There's not any of us here that don't have struggles. But together, together, we can make it to heaven. I want you to let that sink in. Nobody here is alone. Nobody. Together, we can make it to heaven. By the grace of God, that unity is powerful. And if there's something we can do together tonight,